Welcome to In the Spotlight. I'm Abigail Pogrebin. Adam Mansbach is an award-winning novelist, screenwriter, cultural critic, and humorist. He is the author of the number one New York Times bestseller, Go the F to Sleep, which has been translated into 40 languages and sold, can you believe this, 3 million copies worldwide. His novel, Angry Black White Boy, is taught at over 100 schools and was adapted into a prize-winning stage play. Adam's debut screenplay for the 2016 Netflix original Barry was nominated for an Independent Spirit Award and an NAACP Image Award. Adam's work has appeared in The New Yorker, New York Times Book Review, and Esquire, and on NPR's All Things Considered and This American Life. His newest novel, which we will talk about today, is The Golem of Brooklyn. Welcome, Adam Mansbeck. It's great to see you. And uh, thanks for joining us on In the Spotlight. This is some book. I have to say, this is an audience where you have to watch your profanity, even though I know it kind of comes easily to you and it's running through the book. It's got to be a G-rated. Is there still G-rating? G-rated conversation. Um, So tell me about The Golem of Brooklyn. What in the world inspired you? and first, let's exp- make sure everyone understands what a golem is. Sure. So in Jewish folklore, a golem is a humanoid creature made of mud or clay brought to life by a rabbi or a very learned and religious man, always at a time of crisis to defend the Jewish people. The most famous golem is the golem of Prague, usually considered, you know, the Michael Jordan of golems. Uh, after that would be the Golem of Helm, the Scotty Pippen of Golems. Um, no one can agree, of course, on exactly what the recipe is for suscitating a Golem. There are secret incantations, rituals, prayers, but the final step always involves the Hebrew word for truth, which is either written directly on the Golem's forehead or written on a piece of paper that is then inserted into the Golem's mouth. Um, That's Emmet. Yes. Emmet, right. And to deactivate the golem, to return it to its state of inchoate mud or clay, you remove the aleph, turning the word truth to the word death. Um, now, why is that? Can you t- explain why from truth to death? Is that because the golem has now killed? It's a great question. I mean, it's one that I have been pondering. There's no definitive answer. You could argue, for example, that when a golem is around, when a golem is active, it's at a pitch moment of violence and terror. And perhaps that is the truest state of life. Perhaps when uh, you kill the golem, when you turn truth to death, you are backing away from the profundity of that truth because maybe it's too difficult to sit with at all times. We have to restore safety and we have to restore the illusion or the expectation that we could continue to not need a golem in the future. Um, The golem of the golem of Brooklyn is a little bit different. Uh, He is not made by a rabbi or a scholarly or learned man. He's made by an art teacher in Brooklyn who happens to have a large quantity of clay at his disposal and be extremely stoned. And there is not a crisis happening. Um, the, you know, the, 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 the rubric for a crisis as pertains to a golem, the bar is set pretty high. It's not like the existence of anti-Semitism in the world qualifies as a crisis. It's more like someone is imminent. An emergency. 
It's an emergency, right? Um, so this golem comes to life and immediately starts screaming at his creator in Yiddish, which is a language that Len, the guy who made the golem, does not understand, and trashing his apartment. And the golem of the golem of Brooklyn is also very different from any other golem in the history of golems or the literature of golems in that he's a creature with an ancestral memory. So Len doesn't make the golem, he remakes the golem. The golem has been made and remade since the dawn of time and remembers every previous iteration of himself. So in some sense, my golem is a repository of Jewish history and trauma, two words that are unfortunately synonymous. That's what it means to be Jewish. Yeah. In a sense. Um, Len Bronstein, your art teacher who smokes a lot of pot and makes this golem, did he have a plan for it? Was it just like, I'm going to make this giant clay creature and kind of see what happens? I mean, does he understand the lore of the golem and the power? No, Len is shockingly ignorant of all those things. Len builds this golem largely out of boredom and with no real expectation that he will be able to bring it to life. And in some sense, makes this golem on a lazy Saturday in avoidance of trying to write a novel that he has been trying to write and failing to write. This is like one of the most sophisticated procrastination schemes anybody's ever come up with. And the, I'm, I mean, I'm smiling because this is a comedy. I mean, this is a laugh out loud book, but there's also great pathos in it. And I think partly because the history of, of golems is that we had to create, our people had to create something in a way to save us because no one else would. And there's something extremely poignant and tragic about that. Um, before we get to what this golem is going to do, can you get back to the the kind of the trauma that the generational trauma that this golem is carrying, you're saying it's not, it's not a new creature. It's just kind of reincarnated in a sense. The last time that this golem was put to work was at Bob and Yar. Am I, Bobby Yar, am I right about that? Can you explain yeah. just, I think that's a very powerful part of the book. Yeah. So the last time the golem has appeared on the planet was in Kiev, Ukraine in 1941. And the golem was riddled with machine gun bullets and cast into this enormous gorge, along with 33,000 other Jews who were murdered in a 36 hour period at that time. So the golem sort of passes out of Jewish memory at that point. And there is in the book the suggestion that the enormity of the Holocaust, the inconceivability of that scale of death and the efficiency of that scale of death in some sense renders a 10 foot mud goon irrelevant in the in the minds of the of the Jewish people. But it also means that the golem comes back to Brooklyn in 2022 with no knowledge that the Holocaust happened. So it's one of the many things that has to be explained to him as he kind of gets his bearings and figures out what he's doing here. And it's also inconceivable to him that there is no pressing crisis. So one of the things he's screaming in Yiddish at Len when he learns to speak English, we will learn is 
where's the crisis? Where's the crisis? Where's the crisis? I, I actually love that. And partly because it's so Jewish that we're always <laughs> looking for the crisis. Right. Um, can you explain how he learns English uh, from the Yiddish? Because I, I think that it's a wonderful detail. Sure. Uh, the golem learns English by binge watching Curb Your Enthusiasm after accidentally ingesting an extremely large amount of LSD. I don't think the JBS audience is going to be that familiar with LSD. I'm just putting that out there. Adam. It's a very powerful. They can read about it. They can read about it. They may not be able to relate to it from experience, um, uh, nor can I, I will admit. But OK, so he's on LSD. The Golem is on LSD while while watching Curb Your Enthusiasm. And suddenly he's an English speaker. Correct. But there's also um, an important friend, Miri, who is a bodega owner. Am I right? Doesn't she bodega help with the Yiddish translation? OK, does she uh, explain how she figures in? So. The golem comes to life, is screaming at Lenin Yiddish. He's able to calm the golem down and put it in front of this television and then leave his house to go seek out a Yiddish speaker to translate. And the only person in his neighborhood who he's heard speak Yiddish is a woman he does not know who works at a local bodega. And he once heard her curse out some yeshiva kids who came in trying to buy cigarettes. So he's like, aha, the reason Miri speaks Yiddish is that she grew up in a nearby Hasidic set, which she left at the age of 18 because Miri is gay and that lifestyle was not exactly embraced in that world. So she's been on her own ever since, working in this Yemeni bodega six blocks from Len's house and sort of leading this very lonely existence right outside the meniscus of the bubble in which she grew up. She left the Hasidic world, but she didn't leave Brooklyn. She's uh, died in the wool New Yorker. So she's sort of this liminal creature who's between worlds. And Len goes to her bodega to try to convince her to come back to his weird apartment to translate for this golem that he's made. And, you know, Miri is like, understandably a little bit skeptical about this whole proposition. But Len does convince her to come back to the apartment and she becomes embroiled in all of the adventures to follow. As I said in the introduction, uh, your children's book or your parents' children's book, Go the F to Sleep, was just a phenomenon in terms of success. And you've done so many other projects at the same time, screenplays, novels, et cetera. But when you brought this idea to your agent, what was the response? I wrote a four-page outline of this book that I was very excited about. I woke up one morning with this kind of eureka moment because I'd separately been working on two different ideas. One was sort of the comic premise of a golem created by somebody totally unqualified to make a golem. That was just funny to me, the idea that he's screaming at Yiddish, he's misunderstood. But that's like a skit, right? That's like a Saturday Night Live skit, specifically the kind that's funny for two minutes and then drags on for another eight, you know? Um, and separately from that, I was pondering a very complicated sci-fi speculative future novel about epigenetics, the idea that trauma is passed down generationally through the DNA, that it sort of enters the genetic record and flips switches. I had this whole very complicated premise for a book like that. And I realized that the two things could come together if I made the golem a creature with an ancestral memory. I could sort of do all the things I wanted to do in that epigenetics novel through the vehicle of the golem. So I had this revelation. 
I sat down, I wrote this outline, I sent it to my agent. He responded with a one line email, which said, the golem market is dead. <laughs> and I was like, the, the what? So I was like, okay. Now, to be fair, Richard also uh, told me that he couldn't sell Go the F to Sleep. So the real question here may be, why do I not fire Richard? Um, but I was not dissuaded. I sat down and I wrote the book. Amazing. Let's go back to Go the F to Sleep for a minute. It changed your life. Am I, am I right about that? It did. And, and, and the idea for that book came wholly out of your own experience as a father. I had a two-year-old daughter at the time. I now have three daughters, like a farmer in a joke, but my oldest kid, Vivian, who's about to be 16, was two when I wrote the book, three when it came out. And yeah, uh, I didn't write the book with any particular expectation. It was my attempt to honestly render the interior monologue of a parent tasked with putting a young child to sleep. Um, the idea was to kind of mash up the traditional feel and language and rhyme scheme of a board book, B-O-R-B-O-A-R-D, although also B-R-B-O-R-E-D. Um, we remember it, those well. Yeah. Oh, my God. They're and, you know, they're, they're the worst, you know, cutesy animals who are all like marching off sleepily to bed with an ABCB rhyme scheme. I was like, what if I cross pollinated that with the actual interior monologue of a parent? So, you know, I sat down and I wrote that book in like 38 minutes with no pants on and uh, the rest <laughs> is history. <laughs> Can we talk about your Jewishness for a minute? Because, you know, this is a very Jewish book, The Golem of, of Brooklyn, in many ways. And, you know, the Yiddish runs through it in wonderful ways where you don't necessarily even translate it. It's just kind of, there's like a gestalt to the whole thing. But it's not quite clear when I was listening to interviews with you where your jur Jewish journey has taken you. Because you weren't raised with observance, am I right? I'm not sure how you've raised your kids, if you want to share. But just where is your Jewish kind of identity sitting as it relates to this book. Yeah, I was not, I mean, I, I am I am as Jewish as anybody. I have four Jewish grandparents, but I was not raised, I, I, I was raised observant only in the sense that I had noticed things. Um, I didn't- I love that line, that's in your book too. Can yeah, you I'm say, plagiarizing I feel like book. I get that line. I, yeah. <laughs> I, observant in the sense that I noticed things, but how would you explain it? Um, yeah, you know, my, my family is very culturally Jewish. It's certainly, has been a defining fact and force in the lives of my grandparents and my parents to some degree as well. But there was also like a hostility to organized religion, a skepticism. Um, I mostly experienced actual ritual at my friend's houses, you know, like the, the satyrs that I went to at my friend Laz's house were far more impactful than the ones I went to at my grandparents' house that they were kind of like being coerced into having. I mean, to give you some sense of Judaism in my family, there's a story about my grandmother as a child, as like a seven-year-old. My grandmother grew up to be a poet and a playwright. I was very close to her. She was the first writer that I knew. She was the one who made it seem like it was something I could consider a possibility. Her grandparents were probably the last religious Jews in my family. And there's a story about her attending, you know, like a, a classic five hour Seder as a kid. And somebody makes the observation that little Felicia is behaving remarkably well. She's very quiet and attentive. And then this person, I guess, gets up to go to the bathroom 
and walks around the table and notices that Felicia and her father are playing chess at a low table next to the Seder table. And that's why she's been so quiet and studious the whole time. That's my family. Um, so my, my journey toward grappling with and understanding Judaism is one that I pretty much undertook as an adult. As a kid, I wasn't, you know, I didn't go to Hebrew school. I didn't have a bar mitzvah. I'm still an elderly boy in the eyes of the Jewish world. Um, I was a hip hop kid. So I had a very critical sensibility and lens around race and injustice, but it was largely a black white lens. And I conflated Jews with the other white people that I saw in the suburb of Boston that I grew up with, which was largely Jewish. Um, and it's really been something that I've explored more deeply and more fully in my career as a writer, um, probably starting with a novel I wrote called The End of the Jews, which came out in 2008 and was not originally something I intended to be particularly Jewish in its content or its subject matter. It was meant to be a book that focused on my generation and my grandparents' generation and was about a family of artists that can't help stealing from each other repeatedly. But a lot of my research was talking to my grandfather, who was in his late 80s at the time, and understanding the ways in which Judaism, despite his lack of observance, despite his lack of interest, was something that formed a set of parameters around his life that defined his opportunities, that was weaponized against him and for him and by him. Um, none of which is particularly revelatory or surprising, but the way that he was able to personalize those things as I sort of plumbed him for material led me down a certain kind of path that I've sort of been on ever since. And at this point, you know, I'm deeply interested in Jewish history and scholarship and thought. I read the Talmud every day and discuss it with a friend of mine. Whoa. Yeah, who knew? Um, and, you know, I've written I've, I've written a lot on like Jewish subject matters. Now, a lot of that has been like in the realm of humor. I wrote two Jewish humor books with Dave Barry and Alan Zweibel. Uh, but, you know, Jewish humor is an incredibly important part of Judaism, I think. Um, and, you know, it's um, it's something I, I think deeply and hopefully critically about and that informs my work. And I think also the nature of Judaism is such that in any community, there are margins, right? There are people who feel ambiguous, ambivalent. They've got a foot in and a foot out. Judaism is like the Hotel California of religions, right? You can check out, but you can't leave. So those margins tend to be very well populated. And the perspective and the pain that is endemic to feeling that kind of ambiguity and ambivalence. You feel like you're a part of something, but not fully. You don't know exactly what your relationship to it is. That tends to give birth to a lot of good art. And I think for me always, I've connected with the artistic output of Jews who in one way or another feel both very Jewish and very conflicted about where exactly they fit in. So for all of those reasons, um, my my art has, I think, in some ways become more and more Jewish, culminating in the Golem of Brooklyn. You wrote a, a piece. It's kind of chilling in a way how prescient it was in The Washington Post um, two weeks or 10 days before October 7th. Um, and it was basically 
saying we need a golem. Um, I'm just quoting from it briefly. As public figures breathe new life into ancient stereotypes and hate metastasizes unchecked across social media, it seems clear that we live in a world in great need of a 10-foot-tall Jewish crisis monster, or at the very least, a reckoning with what the golem can teach us. First of all, when you look back on the timing of that, I mean, you must... Marvel is the wrong word. I mean, it must in, in some way just be particularly resonant. And then just if you could unpack a little bit what you meant by a reckoning with what the golem can teach us. What can the golem teach us? I think a number of things. I mean, you're right. I wrote that in what seems like a radically different world. And I wrote this book in a different world. It's funny how the book you write always enters a different world than the one you wrote it in and for, sometimes in tiny ways, sometimes in enormous ways. I think what I was getting at in that editorial, in that op-ed, was a, a couple of things. One was the importance of a kind of eternal vigilance, um, a reckoning with the cyclical nature of anti-Semitism, the fact that we're never very far from the last or the next incident. Um, also an enhanced understanding of what anti-Semitism really is, the ways in which it does not map exactly onto racism or any other ism. Um, the way that the chassis of white nationalism uh, is kind of built on the foundation of anti-Semitism, that that's very much at the core of it as a belief system. Um, the way in which these canards are both ancient and endlessly renewable. There hasn't really been a new idea in anti-Semitism in hundreds of years, right? Um, but there's a, an eternal recycling of these ideas. But also I was getting at the fact that for every other group targeted by the same hatred, immigrants, black folks, gay and trans folks in this country, um, anti-Semitism and Jews are kind of like the canary in the coal mine. And I think there needs to be a mutual understanding that when they come for us, they're coming for you. When they're coming for you, they're coming for us. Um, but another point that I wanted to make in that editorial, and I think an important one, and one I've been reflecting on more since October 7th, is the fact that although nobody can agree on how you make a golem, this is Judaism, so it's always two Jews, three opinions, one thing that is consistent in all of the mythology is the moral necessity of deactivating the golem as soon as you possibly can. As soon as the danger has passed, you erase the Aleph and you turn the golem back into clay. There's no sense of a golem being allowed to exist forever as a perpetual nuclear deterrent to anti-Semitism. Nobody makes an army of golems. Nobody makes a thousand foot golem. There are strict and important parameters because that level of unchecked violence, aggression, power encapsulated in a, in a figure without a moral sense or a spiritual compass is deeply dangerous and deeply compromises our humanity. So to me, one of the most important things about the golem is that he exists for a limited time only and always. And that speaks to the necessity, I think, of maintaining some level of hope 
even in the face of everything we know about the future. It's the same balancing act that we're always, as Jews and as people, asked to maintain, which is to not forget the past, to not whitewash the past, but also not to give up hope on the future. So Adam, I guess finally then, it's just striking me. It's impossible, it was impossible for me not to read this book with October 7th in my mind because I read it after October 7th. And there's so much humor in it, but it also made me just feel great sadness that we still need this mythological creature to protect us. And I guess I would love you to just respond to that. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason I think that the myth of the golem has been so durable. And what the golem represents is always changing, right? Right now, one of the most common metaphors for the golem or that the golem provides is about artificial intelligence. But again, it's the same set of concerns and fears that we're imbuing the golem with under a different guise. But fundamentally, it's this idea of power and defense wrapped up in a dangerous inability to control a creature that we've created and have the technology to create, but not the morality to control. And that's why the golem is so fraught. My golem is very funny talks a lot of smack. The book is full of wackiness and adventure, but also ultimately in answer to the persistent question, where is the crisis that the golem keeps asking? There is ultimately an answer, which is that there's a white nationalist march in Kentucky in a couple of days. And the golem is like, great. Where are those? Like, let's go. Let's go find those guys. And ultimately what my characters are forced to confront And I think to me, what is at the heart of the book and also the question of the golem? They realize that nobody can convince the golem that his job is not to kill as many white nationalists as possible. They make a valiant attempt to convince him otherwise. They even recruit Larry David to try to make the argument. Larry David is like, those Jews will not replace us, guys. No, he should kill as many as possible. The golem is like, told you. So ultimately, they end up in Kentucky. And Miri and Len end up on opposite sides of this kind of ethical, spiritual conundrum. Because what they realize is that they can allow the golem to run amok and destroy the enemies of the Jews. That's option one. But if they do so, they may no longer be Jewish. On some fundamental level, that action may be so anathema to the deeply held Jewish values that they both on some level retain and which fuel them, that the thing they're attempting to protect and defend, they may have ceased to be that thing. That's option number one. Option number two is that they erase the Aleph and destroy the Golem. And neither one of them expected to be on the side of that argument that they find themselves. Neither one of them knows exactly how to proceed. And, you know, in what I hope is true Talmudic fashion, I leave that question very much unresolved. Um, But I think that is ultimately where we end up and that is ultimately kind of where the golem takes us. The book is The Golem of Brooklyn. The author is Adam Manspeck. Adam, thank you so much for being with us. And to all of you, I'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you.